remember to continue to pray. Uh, you know, this is God's church. Growth is up to the Lord. When we bring new people in, it's because the Lord brings them. We affirm that here this morning. But because it's up to the Lord, we need to be praying. We need to be praying that the Lord would bring those who belong to us and need to be here. And so let's let's never let's never cease that. Let's uh, make that part of our regular ongoing prayers. Okay. Uh, our fifth Sunday service a few weeks ago that was fun, wasn't it? It was a great reminder of how much fun it is to work with kids. You never know what they're going to say. And here's a good example. A pastor was giving a children's church message uh, during church, and the adults were there, the kids came up on stage, kind of like we did a couple weeks ago. On this particular Sunday, he was using squirrels as an object lesson uh, for hard work and uh, perseverance. And uh, so he said, I'm going to describe something. He said, kids, I'm going to describe something. I want you to raise your hand when you know what it is. And the children said, this thing lives in trees. He paused. And eats nuts. He paused. No response. No hands went up. And it's gray and has long, bushy tail. Still no response. And they were kind of looking at each other, but nobody raised their hands. And it jumps from branch to branch and chatters and flips its tail when it's excited. He paused again. Finally, one little boy kind of tentatively raised his hand. And the pastor breathed a sigh of relief. And the little boy said, well... I know the answer must be Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. <laughs> now, some churches use catechisms to teach children and even adults some of the foundational truths of the faith. How many of you have ever been raised in a church, maybe you were raised in a church that had some sort of a catechism? Not many of us. And that's because it's a very Catholic and Reformed and Lutheran, that kind of thing. But it's, it can be a really good thing. They're often in the form of questions and answers. They're supported by scriptural references. Um, it can be a fruitful and effective way to teach basic Christian doctrine. Now, there's one catechism that's derived from the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Catechism. And there's a story of a teacher who was drilling his young students in this catechism one day. And the first question in the catechism, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is our primary purpose? The answer being, anybody know the answer to this one? Tom? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever, right? Okay, so some of you have heard this. Well, one of the kids, uh, being pretty sure of himself, raised his hand. I, I know, I know, you see the kid, I know, I know, that's right. And when the teacher called his name, this kid proudly blurted out, the chief end of man is to glorify God and annoy Him forever. Maybe that's a little more true than we like to admit. If I were to ask you what your primary purpose as a believer is, I doubt too many of us would quote the Westminster Catechism. We might. But uh, it's the chief end of man or your primary purpose. And let's think for a minute about how you might answer that question. I think we could get several different answers to that question this morning. Some of us might say to obey God. Some of us might say to love God. Some of us might say to help bring people to Christ, to be his witnesses, to be his evangelists, to live to serve him, we might say, to love God and to love others, to show compassion, to love your neighbor as yourself. And, of course, all of these stated purposes are grounded in Scripture as well, in things like the Great Commission 
and the great commandment. We read in Matthew 28, the great commission, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So that might be our answer. It's to bring people to Christ. It's to participate in the Great Commission. That's maybe my primary purpose. And then we read in Mark 12, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that, he answered them well, asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So again, if we were to answer that, gee, I think that's my primary purpose, it wouldn't necessarily be a bad answer. But it's fair to say, I believe, that all these purposes we've mentioned for the believer in Christ are right and good, but I submit that these things as part of our purpose as believers, are founded on, they are based on one primary purpose that holds true for all of us. And that's what the Westminster Catechism says. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We'll look at several passages of Scripture which support this, but let's start with a key one from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 which says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So it's clear that our actions must be motivated by God's love in us through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit so that everything, everything we do will be for the express purpose of glorifying God. This should be a guiding principle for us in all of our important decisions. Is what I am doing glorifying God? Or how can I honor and glorify God through this action? The immediate context of this verse is what we eat and what we drink. But I believe this helps to illustrate the next part of this verse. Whatever you do, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and down through the centuries to us. In other words, if we can and should glorify God in as small a matter as eating and drinking, then certainly we should in all other things too. Whatever our actions, whatever our plans, our schemes, our desires, we're admonished here to glorify God in all these things. So a good question to ask on a daily basis is, can this thing that I want to do glorify God? Can this decision that I'm making glorify God? Matthew Henry calls this the fundamental principle of practical godliness. The great end of all practical religions, he writes, must direct us to where particular and express rules are wanting. Nothing must be done against the glory of God and the good of our neighbors connected with it. Nay, the tendency of our behavior to the common good and the credit of our holy religion should give direction to it. So we see that when we do these things, all this list that we mentioned a moment ago of other things that maybe we say is this is my purpose in Christ. Remember that look we, the list we looked at earlier. We see that when we obey God, we glorify Him. When we love God, we glorify Him. When we participate in the Great Commission, we're His witnesses, evangelists, we glorify Him. When we live to serve Him in any sphere or work He gives us, 
we glorify Him. When we fulfill the great commandment and love others, we glorify Him. When we show compassion, when we show mercy, we glorify Him. When we give sacrificially of our time, our talent, our money, our resources, we glorify Him. Jesus said in Matthew 25, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So again, Paul wrote, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now we see this idea that giving glory to God is the chief end of man, is our primary purpose throughout Scripture. We see it in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, where Peter writes, Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So you don't have to be on this stage to speak and to glorify God. The one who speaks can indeed glorify God, but so can the one who serves. And that can be all of us in myriad of ways. John the Baptist clearly understood his place in the grand scheme of things. When some of John's disciples complained in the Gospel of John chapter 3 that all the people were following Jesus instead of John, John said essentially, good, good, that's a good thing, that's why I came. He must increase and I must decrease. I'm not the big deal here. I'm here to prepare the way, but Jesus is the real deal. He's the only one who deserves honor and glory, not me. I must decrease in importance myself. He must increase. He must get the glory, not me. Again, this can apply to pretty much any kind of endeavor that we can think of. Johann Sebastian Bach, you know, the great composer, said, All music should have no other end and aim than the glory of God and the soul's refreshment. Where this is not remembered, there is no real music, but only a devilish hubbub. Lots of devilish hubbub in popular music and culture these days. Lots of self-glorifying. But we could go across categories of work or hobbies or nearly any activity. Music, as we just mentioned. Engineering. Building and construction trades. Restaurant work, housework, teaching. Preaching, administration, accounting, science, computers and IT, cleaning toilets or washing dishes, caring for the sick and dying, raking leaves, raising kids. We could go on and on, right? As Peter wrote, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And as Paul wrote, whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. When we're at work, are we thinking of how we can glorify God? Are we glorifying God in our work? When we're at home, doing whatever we would do at home, housework, raising kids, cleaning toilets, can we glorify God? Yes, I believe we can. Charles Ryrie, a famous teacher from Dallas Seminary, said, God's glory is his reputation. To live for God's glory means to live so that God's reputation is enhanced, heightened in quantity and quality, and not diminished in any way. You know, one of the most powerful witnesses of God's glory we have as believers is to do things with excellence, to do things well, be an excellent, dependable, reliable worker at whatever it is that people are paying you to do or maybe you're volunteering to do. If you do that work with excellence, that glorifies God. I really believe that's true. In Scripture, glory refers to 
worth, beauty, and value, it means to give weight to. The glory of God is his renown, his honor, and his fame. To glorify someone is to recognize their worth, beauty, and to speak of their honor so that others can see and hear. But you know what? We can also get in the way of God's glory intentionally or I think most of the time unintentionally. Think of photobombing. You know what photobombing is? Can't be too critical here because she's three years old. But here's Rose Feathers getting in the picture with her big brother Wesley, who's getting his prize for the wet and wild. Photobombing. And here's Barb's brother Peter. That's Barb the bride there. Peter was nine when we got married, and he's stealing the bride's glory, sticking his face right there in the corner of that picture. We can do the same thing. We can photobomb. We can get in the way. I believe this scriptural understanding of glorifying God and everything really presents us with kind of an important choice this morning. Will we, by doing everything we do for the glory of God, seek the good of many, or by glorifying ourselves, will we seek only our own good? And maybe, as a result, cause others to stumble or to somehow miss God. Are we going to be a full moon or are we going to be a solar eclipse? As believers, it's clear from the passage of scripture we just read that God commands us to do everything for his glory. The words couldn't be more clear than in verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 10. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whatever, that's a pretty all-encompassing word, right? Preparing for this message today, I reviewed dozens of the literally hundreds of passages of scripture which talk about glorifying God. And one of them was Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, a familiar verse. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. There seems to be a cause and effect here. First, people see your good works, right? Which, of course, assumes that you're doing them. And then they glorify our Heavenly Father. So thinking about this analogy of light, so often used in scripture, it's a very rich analogy, I thought of a story I heard in a concert almost 50 years ago. Listen to this brief clip. This is Barry McGuire. Who knows Barry McGuire? Christian singer, 60s, 70s. And this is from a live concert album he did with the second chapter of Acts and Phil Keggy in 1975. Oh, I love those little songs. Man. Ooh, hey, I've been singing them, you know, since I was a little bitty dude, man, way back before I knew Jesus. I used to sing glory, glory, hallelujah. Hey, I didn't know what hallelujah meant, you know. I used to sing, you know, this little light of mine. Hey, I didn't have a little light, right? <laughs> oh, man. I spent 35 years of my life just stumbling around in the darkness. I didn't know there was a light that I could, that I could be established in, you know, that I could come out of that darkness. Well, not long ago, we were up in Northern California, and Brother Nabana was reading in the Word one morning, you know, riding in a bus. <clears throat> reading. You ever try to read when you're riding in a bus? You read the same word seven times. <laughs> hey, but he was getting all excited, man. Oh, hey, what's going on over there? Oh, man, look, look at here, man. Well, what are you reading? He said, oh, Genesis. I said, well, what's happening? What's happening? <laughs> He says, well, God just created the world, man. That's what happened there, right here. Well, he says, look, man. He says here that, that, that he set the sun to rule the day. And, and, and he put a lesser light, the moon, to rule the night. He said, that's like us, man. 
And I'm, you know, a little thick up, you know, up here, right? What do you mean that's like us? You know? He said, well, you know, man, he says, when it's nighttime, he said, you can't see the sun because it's dark out. He said, well, that's the way it is in the world with people who don't know God. He said, they can't see God because they're living in darkness, you know? He said, they can see the reflection of God shining through the lives of his people, man. He said, we're like the moon. And I went, oh, oh, Lord, I want to be a full moon. Boom. Oh, you know? Woo. Oh, yeah. I wasn't at this particular concert that actually ended up as a recording on this album. Great album. How the West was one, if you ever get a chance to listen to it. Some really good music on that. But I did see one of the concerts that was part of the same tour when I was a freshman at ORU, and he told this same story. So I heard that story in person almost 50 years ago. And as I thought of this analogy, I remember thinking several things that expanded on the sun and moon ideas that he presented in that little story. And it relates very well to our subject here this morning. Remember that the moon doesn't generate any of its own light, okay? Of course, neither does the earth except the electric light that you can see from space even. But remember that the moon doesn't generate any of its own light. It's a cold, dark stone, basically, uh, orbiting in space, right? Orbiting the earth. But the moon is at its most magnificent when it's a full moon, isn't it? Using all of the surface that we can see to reflect the sun's light. So the planets in our solar system revolve around the sun, and the moon, of course, revolves around the earth. Think about this. What do you hear often said of people who have a tendency to be narcissistic and glorify themselves? They think the world revolves around them, right? It's easy to find such things in our culture that promote that idea, so it's easy for us to kind of slip into that line of thinking. For example, I don't really want to puff myself up or brag, but I am incredible according to several credit card companies that send me mail every week. So if we take this analogy just a little bit further, think of this, as we as believers are like the moon, not only do we not generate any of our own light, but we're not the center of the solar system either, and so nothing revolves around us. If the sun in our analogy is God the sun, Jesus, and if the earth is the world, that is the people we're trying to reach with the gospel, our little moon lights the night sky with the reflected light of the Son of God. The moon reflects the light of the sun. I want to be a full moon, Barry McGuire said. That's what I want to pray for all of us this morning, that we would all be full moons. When we glorify God, we do reflect the light of the Son of God. When we don't, and we try to shine our own light, we eclipse the sun's light. We block it, we get in the way. Of course, our own light, such as it is, is a very dim reflection of the light of the Son of God. We're kind of like a 25-watt bulb at best. But not only is the light of the Son of God beyond comparing to our own natural, puny, dim light, but when we try to shine our own light, that is, when we tend to glorify ourselves, we're more like a solar eclipse. We block the sun's light, and we make it harder for others to see it. The reverse is true. When we're fully reflecting God's light, when we're a full moon, it's much easier to light the world around us with the light of Christ. It's easier for people to see God's light reflected through us. Why? Because we're drawing attention to, we're pointing to the source of any light that people see in us. 
by serving as a reflection and deflecting attention from ourselves. I'm assuming everybody knows what an eclipse is, but let's think of it in these spiritual terms here this morning and in the context of glorifying God as our focus. An eclipse, of course, is an astronomical term. It's a, a solar eclipse, for example, is when the light of the sun is obscured in part or in whole by the intervention of the moon between it and a point on Earth. Some secondary definitions of an eclipse also add to our thinking this morning. So if people use this in another way other than the solar definition. Eclipse can be a reduction or a loss of splendor by comparison, status, reputation. It makes or to make it less outstanding or important to surpass. The definition of solar is instructive too as we think about this analogy. Let's again think of the S-O-N in terms of the S-U-N. Scientifically, solar means of or pertaining to the sun, determined by the sun, proceeding from the sun as light or heat, utilizing, operated by, or depending on solar energy, indicating time by means of or with reference to the sun and subject to the influence of the sun. So, as Christians, we're a solar people, too. And we're also a full moon people. We're of, pertaining to, as the sun in Jesus, the Son of God. Our lives are determined by the sun. We proceed from the sun. Our lives utilize, operate, and depend on solar energy, God at work in us and through us. And our times are all in reference to the sun, we are subject to the influence of the sun. So when we put the two together, solar and eclipse, we see we are essentially a solar people, energized by Christ, lit up by him, like the moon is lit up by the sun. You guys want to get lit today? Let's get lit. Encouraged to shine his light, to glorify him by reflecting his light to the world. So by being a full moon people, we are reflecting the glory of the sun, but we're also warned about eclipsing or obscuring his light by getting in the way of it. Remember our definition of the solar eclipse and think of it in these spiritual terms. With Jesus, the sun, we're the moon, and the world is represented by the earth. The solar eclipse is the blocking or obscuring of the light of the sun by the intervention of the moon between it and a point of earth. If we're the moon and we get in the way of the light of the sun, not only can people not see the light of the sun directly, if at all, they can't even see the reflected light of the sun shining off of us. So again, we can obey God, we can glorify Him, we can be a full moon, or we can obscure His light in love and be a solar eclipse. Sometimes what we are is light blockers, which in scriptural terms translates into glory thieves. We're photobombing God. Whether we're intentionally grabbing glory for ourselves, that happens sometimes, or we're just getting in the way of God's glory, we can sometimes obscure His light, the light of the Son of God. We rob God of the glory that's due only Him. I read a story about a first-year teacher in kindergarten. She had this student in her class who was having a birthday. The mother of the student wanted to have a party in the class, so she brought... All the party stuff, presents, cake, ice cream. And the teacher noticed as the party was progressing that one little boy was sulking. None of our kids ever sulk, right? When the presents were handed out, he didn't get any. Why? It wasn't his party, right? It was the other student's birthday. He'd sulk again, the next present was handed out, he got sulkier and poutier as it went on. Before long, he was the center of attention. 
and he was well on his way to spoiling the party. So one of the mothers at the party was noticing what was going on here, and she approached the little party pooper powder. Say that five times real fast. She said to him very quietly, Joey, it's not your party. It's not your party. What a great thing for us to keep in mind when we think about glorifying God. That little boy was not just selfish, wanting the presence. He wanted the glory. He wanted the attention. He wanted the party to be about him. He was upset because he wasn't the center of attention, but he wasn't supposed to be. It wasn't his birthday. He wasn't supposed to be the center of attention. So the passages of scripture we've read this morning related to God's glory are just a couple of the literally hundreds of verses in the Old and New Testament which say something about glorifying God. That's because the word of God is his story. It's about his party, if you will, his plan, his glory. It's all about him. It's about his glory, which is why our primary purpose, our primary purpose as his followers, redeemed by the blood of Christ, is to glorify him and not ourselves in all we do. Even with all the people mentioned in the Bible, we, we read about people we would call heroes of the faith, right? Even with all the stories, it's still God's story. It's still his glory. We were made for his glory, and we are called to display his glory in everything we do. But sin and our own self-will makes us glory thieves. A writer by the name of Paul David Tripp wrote this. He says, we crave glory that does not belong to us, and we step on one another to get it. Rather than glorifying God by using the things he has given us to love other people, we use people to get the glory we love. So sin causes us to steal the story and rewrite it within ourselves as the lead and with our lives at center stage. But there is only one stage, and it belongs to the Lord. Any attempt to put ourselves in his place puts us in a war with him. We do not suffer well because suffering interferes with our glory. We do not find relationships easy because others compete with us for glory. We do not serve well because in our quest for glory, we want to be served. The Redeemer has come so that glory thieves would joyfully live for the glory of another. There is no deeper personal joy and satisfaction than to live committed to his glory. Amen? The enemy of our souls is well aware of our propensity to be glory thieves. He tried to steal God's glory himself, and he failed. He tempted Eve with the same idea. We read in Genesis when Satan told Eve, you will be like God. Satan tried to discourage Jesus from the Father's plan for glory. When he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, in Luke chapter 4, the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory. For it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered him and said, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So here we see Jesus quoting Deuteronomy. And in that Old Testament book, Moses warned the people about their attitude, knowing that when they finally got into the land that God promised, and they achieved some glory and dominion in this land, the temptation for them would be for them to praise themselves and forget to worship God, to give God the glory. But Jesus 
would give God the Father the credit and not take it for itself. He would not fail as Israel failed. In fact, Jesus did communicate this idea in very different words. In John chapter 5, verse 41, he said, I do not receive glory from men. And then in John chapter 5, verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? The stamp of approval for Jesus, the glory of the religious leaders in Israel, wasn't important to him. He didn't care about that at all. He wanted God's approval, and only God's approval was important to him. So there's so much we can say about God's glory, and there's so much we can say about glorifying him. God can use anything for his glory, and that's why Paul tells us to do everything for his glory. Many of you know uh, the late author, writer, Prison Fellowship founder, Charles Colson, and he remembered that the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure, that I was an ex-convict. He wrote, my greatest humiliation, being sent to prison, was the beginning of God's greatest use in my life. He chose the one experience in which I could not glory for his glory. In John 11:4, when Jesus first hears of the illness of his good friend Lazarus, it says, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And of course, we know that Lazarus was later raised from the dead, and Jesus was indeed glorified through this. In John chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So this passage is in the context of Jesus teaching that he is divine and we are the branches. And he is glorified in our fruit bearing. When we bear fruit, we glorify him. Just as he is glorified in the growth of crops on a farm. He sends the sunshine, he sends the rain, he makes the crops grow and makes them ready for harvest. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 11 we read, it speaks of being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So our faithful following of Jesus in some very real, maybe almost mystical way is a part of his glory when we follow him faithfully. In John 17, as Jesus prayed to the Father, he said, all I have is yours and all you have is mine and the glory has come to me through them. You remember who he was praying for then? He was praying for his disciples. In the Old Testament, God lived among his people. He showed them his glory. When Jesus came, God's glory was displayed in him. And then his disciples glorified him. Now, in our age, we can have the privilege of glorifying Jesus with our very lives. We have the privilege of reflecting his glory to a lost world. God's glory is the revelation of his character. When we, as believers, are in our full moon mode we too reveal his character. We reflect the light of the world. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, a familiar passage, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As God transforms us more and more each day into the image and likeness of Christ, as we apply more of the truth of God's word to our personal lives, as we grow in production of the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit changes us. 
we reflect more and more of his glory. Our attitudes, our behavior, everything in our lives reflects more of his light into a dark world. This is our purpose, my brothers and sisters. We grow from a new moon. As we grow in Christ, we're a new moon, reflecting nothing, to a quarter, to a half, to a full moon over the course of our lifetimes. The more we become like him, the more we reflect his glory. The more we glorify him, we show compassion. We glorify him. When we reveal and reflect his grace, we glorify him. The glory of God is the ruling motive in our lives as Christians, not just having our own way, our own party. It's not about us. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So I have a music video I want to show you as we close. And I want you to prayerfully watch this and think about this message of being full moon believers in Christ and pray about how God can use each of us to glorify him.